from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, February 16th. We'll begin today on the news this morning that Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died in prison, and we've got none other than Masha Gessen from The New Yorker to talk about it with. But first on MSNBC's Morning Joe. The former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, who served under President Obama and was a personal friend of Navalny, had this blunt reaction to the news. Putin killed Navalny. Let's be crystal clear about that. I don't care about any negotiation, you know, investigation, his ill health, arrested, had him in solitary confinement. He has put him in a a, a cell which was designed and today he is dead. Putin killed Navalny. And why did he? Because Putin is weak. You don't kill people if you're strong. Putin killed Navalny because Navalny was the one opposition leader in Russia that Putin feared the most. So this is a really tragic day for me, and it should be a tragic day for anybody who cares about democracy. Yeah, those little dropouts were on McFall's line, not on your device, but Michael McFall on MSNBC. We have probably the perfect guest to talk about the apparent murder by Putin of Alexei Navalny and what it means. The journalist Masha Gessen, dual citizen of the U.S. and Russia, wanted by Putin himself for their reporting on Ukraine, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of 11 books, including Surviving Autocracy and The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, which won the National Book Award in 2017. Masha's family, by way of background, emigrated from the old Soviet Union to the United States when Masha was 14. Masha went back to Russia in the 90s and worked as a journalist there until 2013, when it became too hard to be an independent-minded journalist there, then moved here again and has been living in New York since for this past decade. They have met debated and written about Alexei Navalny in the past, not always favorably. Their latest New Yorker article published last week was called Tucker Carlson Promised an Unedited Putin. The result was boring. We'll get to that, too. Masha, always good to have you on the show. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. Good to be here. Do you assume as unambiguously as Ambassador McFall in the clip we just played that Vladimir Putin has had Navalny killed? Yes. Navalny had already... Uh, well, that, I, I guess I asked a yes or no question. You gave me a yes or no answer. <laughs> Correct. Uh, Navalny had already been sentenced to a long prison term in a remote part of Russia. What would Putin gain by taking this next and ultimate step? I think that... Putin continued to be scared of Navalny and Navalny's popularity uh, and Navalny's the way in which Navalny symbolized a future, um, a future Russia without Putin and a different Russia. And it's also, and he's also just he's a vengeful little man. He's wanted Navalny da- dead for a long time. So I think there's a combination of fear. Um, which Putin always feels around the time of so-called elections. He's coming up for election next month. Oh, so-called elections, not actually an election. And um, and at the same time, I think he's also feeling empowered. He's feeling empowered because 
uh, Ukraine is faltering. Uh, U.S. aid to Ukraine is stalled. Uh, he feels confident that there's an incoming Trump administration that will uh, not uh, in any way protect Ukraine or um, or really bother with trying to stop Putin from uh, what he's planning to do to the rest of Europe and to his own people. And so that combination of feeling both scared and emboldened, I think, is what moved his hand at this time. That's an interesting answer in the context of the McFall clip that we played for Morning Joe. I don't know if you heard it as your line was getting hooked up. But he said that Putin wanted Navalny killed because Putin is weak. It sounds like you don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. No, I think um, I don't. Uh, there's there's no evidence that Putin is weak. Uh, he is really stronger than he has ever been. Um, the war has been great for his hold on power. It's been great for the Russian economy. Uh, he sees himself be- becoming ever more powerful. He's also paranoid, um, but nobody should mistake paranoia for weakness. Dictators are often paranoid, and in fact, that's that's a strength for dictators. The more paranoid they are, the longer they stay in power. Mm. Do you think there's kind of a wishful thinking, uh, Putin is weak, strain that keeps surfaces? I'm thinking about um, the armed uprising last summer by Yevgeny Prigozhin and members of the Wagner Group, which had been fighting for Russia in Ukraine. Uh, but then Prigozhin wound up dead. But some of the analysis at the time of the uprising was it was happening because Putin was weak or Putin would then be weak because of the uprising. Uh, but he crushed that rebellion with an iron fist and had its leader put to death. And now there's this. So do you think there's some Putin is weak, wishful thinking that comes and goes? I do. We've been hearing that Putin is weak for, I don't know, over a decade for sure. Um, I think I engaged in some Putin is weak theorizing back during the mass protests of 2011-2012. And then I, for one, learned that um, there's a big difference between the presence of some sort of unrest, the a break in the in the power monolith, an occasional break, and a path for that break to actually uh, lead to change of regime. That path is very very long, very non-linear, and basically, I think at this point, with the way that Putin has changed Russia and has established his power, I think that path is non-existent. I was already reading your most recent New Yorker articles when I heard the Navalny news this morning, so I went back and read your piece from 2021 called The Evolution of Alexei Navalny's Nationalism, and I saw that it was also about your own evolution on how you perceived Navalny. He had taken some pretty hateful positions in the past, and I see that you had debated him. How did he and how did your view of him evolve? You know, I think Navalny was one of those extraordinary politicians who actually grow and think out in public. I think that's what one of the things that made him so compelling, so charismatic, and made him have such a broad appeal in Russia. Uh, he he did start out as a not terribly well-educated, young, fiery activist with some really hateful national uh, far nationalistic uh, ethno nationalist positions 
And he evolved over the course of about a decade into a civic nationalist. Now, I know Americans are not generally used to that kind of um, distinction between civic nationalism and, uh, and ethno-nationalism, but it's a very important distinction. Ethno-nationalism is what we often use, uh, w- what we often mean when we say nationalism, and what we mean then is far-right politics, ethnicity-based politics, politics of xenophobia and hatred. Um, civic nationalism is uh, is a politics of building a healthy, democratic nation-state for all its members. And that was very much uh, Navalny's position. He also very interestingly moved from libertarian to sort of social democrat positions. Uh, he he was an an always student. He was um, he was constantly learning languages and um, and new areas. He uh, he, stu- he studied political science. He studied religion. He studied economics. He was um, he was a learner and um, and he was strategic, but not embarrassed to talk about things that he had learned. Can you tell us about a time that you debated Navalny? What was that about and how you processed it over time? Um, it wasn't exactly a debate. He was running for mayor of Moscow, and um, and at some point uh, I was asked, uh, not by him, but um, I was asked uh, what he would have to say in order for me to support him and and I said that he would have to renounce his his ethno-nationalist positions. And um, I, I don't really remember what I said, but I sort of proposed a way in which he could talk about the issues that that compelled him. His campaign manager agreed, but Navalny never actually adopted that statement. But I think a more interesting conversation, uh, and one that's really haunting me, was a conversation that I had with him when I interviewed him for The New Yorker um, right after he came out of a coma. Uh, precipitated by the poisoning with with chemical weapons with Novichok, when he was uh, he was he was then saved by Russian doctors and then evacuated to Germany was in a medically induced coma in Germany for a number of weeks, and when he came out of the coma before he really even started rehab he gave a few interviews and um, I said to him you know uh, you and I have had this argument in the past where you have always insisted on in calling. Putin and his people uh, crooks and thieves. And I've always insisted on calling them murderers and terrorists. And are you convinced now that they're murderers? And he said, no, no, they're crooks and thieves. They, um, they murder in order to protect their wealth. Um, this was his lens, uh, and it was a lens that was incredibly compelling for a Russian audience, this idea that what was wrong with the system was that it was profoundly corrupt. And he was not wrong, uh, but I don't think it's the fundamental trait of Putinism. The fundamental trait of Putinism is that it's murderous and terroristic. Uh, and a side effect of that is the accumulation of, uh, of wealth and the consolidation of power. Um, and I think that his insistence on, uh, on the idea that they're crooks and thieves who killed to protect their wealth was probably self-protective. It, it's probably what gave him hope. It mm-hmm. probably what gave him the ability to go back to Russia. But in the end, they're just murderers. Masha, today is February 16th. Next Saturday, the 24th. As you know, it will officially be two years since the invasion of Ukraine began. 
One main point of your recent article on the war was that Ukrainians are beginning to consider the war a kind of permanent state rather than something short-term that they will win and move on with their lives. Is that how you would describe it today? Yes. Um, I mean, for one thing, Ukrainians are quite aware that the war is not two years old, it's 10 years old. The war began with the occupation of Crimea in February 2014. And... The full-scale invasion, which began two years ago, to Ukrainians at first felt like an emergency. Their defense was so robust that most people, I think, believed that, and had to believe to, to survive, that they would be able to beat Russia back and really, truly, decisively defeat Russia. And decisively defeat Russia means take back Crimea, which would really precipitate the the collapse of the Russian Empire. What they're understanding now is that they, um, the counteroffensive that began last spring has faltered. The situation at the front is, uh, in the best case, a, a stalemate. In the worst case, it's a slow, slow retreat on the part of the Ukrainians. And uh, American aid is stalled. Ukraine is going to run out of munitions uh, next month, and it's running out of people who can fight at the front. It's a really dire situation. And psychologically, it is a dire situation because people, um, people were mobilized and inspired, but more and more they feel tired, they feel disconnected from the people who left the country. They feel like the population of the country has basically split in two. Um, and we'll never be able to, to reunite. And the thing that I really wanted to focus on was, you know, we when we talk about the war in Ukraine, we speak rightly of not only Ukraine's existential struggle, but the, the struggle for the future of democracy anywhere. Ukraine uh, is, was an inventive, hopeful, young democracy that was willing to go to war to protect, um, to protect its political system, but you can't have democracy in war. Obviously, elections are postponed, uh, military administrations take a lot of authority, um, and this is all inevitable. A, a de facto rule by decree is inevitable. All of that in the long run is destructive to the very thing that they're supposed to be protecting. You quote a prominent Ukrainian journalist, Katerina Sergatskova, who asked, what are we fighting for, land? Should I take from that question that some Ukrainians are beginning to think fighting for total victory is not worth the sacrifice? I think they are. I think they at least want that uh, question to be part of the public discussion. Um, but, of course, it's incredibly politically fraught because they're not only talking about land. They're talking about people, um, at least 5 million Ukrainians are living under Russian occupation. And any Ukrainian leader, any Ukrainian negotiator, who, if there were ever any negotiations, which, by the way, none are because Russia is not sitting down, but even if we imagine the negotiations happen, uh, we would be asking Ukrainians to say, we're giving up our people to the treatment that they receive from Russian occupants. Uh, that's a politically incredibly difficult proposition. 
Um, but should it be more difficult than the proposition that Ukrainians should be fighting an endless war with um, with so many people dying at the front and so many civilians dying daily, nightly, during Russia's bombing and shelling? This is kind of going to be pushback to a lot of the okay. premise of the conversation we've been having. Michael in Huntington, you're on WNYC with Masha Gessen. Hi, Michael. Yes, uh, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I got to tell you, I really uh, just tuned in kind of late, but this is the same kind of nonsense we've been hearing since this thing started. We act like the war started in, in, in uh, two years ago. Uh, this started back in 2014 when we had a coup and we helped uh, change the government of the Ukraine. And what, it's really not in the United States' interest what happens there. I'm sorry, it's just not. And uh, Russia moved in to protect the Russian speakers of that of the Luhansk and Donetsk, and um, it's the same kind of uh, justification we used when we went into Yugoslavia, responsibility to protect. Now, look, I don't really care about either side, but all I know is that this country doesn't defend its own borders, and we really have no national interest in the Ukraine. And honestly, the expansion of NATO was completely unwarranted and was the, was the, was the, uh, the, the cause of a lot of this. Now, Ma- Michael, I'm going to leave it there because wow. Marshall guy, has to this go guy really a couple of minutes. <laughs> Ahead, he really Marcia. has his Kremlin talking points down. Wow, he hit every note. That's incredible. Uh, that is what Kremlin propaganda sounds like. That is exactly it, note for note. Um, Ukraine is a sovereign country. It's, by the way, Ukraine, not the Ukraine. Uh, it's an actual country. The people of Ukraine staged a heroic revolution in 2013, 2014. They stayed in the city square for... Um, for three months, even as the police fired at them, even as more than 100 people died, they stayed and they defended their future, their idea of democracy. To call that a coup, which is what Putin does, is, to, is so incredibly disrespectful to the, to the really inspiring and heroic people of, of, of Ukraine. Um, the same goes for the rest of the caller's points. I don't, I can't regurgitate them, but really, you know, just go on any Kremlin website any time of day and they will all be there, note for note. Yeah. Um, so last thing, and I want to thank you for giving us all the scheduled time that you were going to be on for today anyway before the Navalny uh, death news broke, and I know you have to go mm-hmm. and write about it. One more listener comment and we'll close with your reaction to this. Listener writes, I was born in mid-70s Lithuania and when a teen when Lithuania declared independence. The fact that Russian people became a victim to another dictatorship and they don't have a possibility to break it off at this point, as your guest Masha Gessen is saying, I agree with. It may sound defeatist, but my country is free only because Ukraine has withstood the Russian aggression for so long with the help of NATO. So I shake in my boots when I see a prospect of Trump being elected. Not only would he support every other dictatorship of the world, but he would institute one in the U.S. himself, writes that listener. And Masha, you you end your Putin Tucker Carlson article with the line, if I were Poland, I'd be afraid. So apparently Lithuania too. Do you think Putin or the Russian people actually want to occupy or dictate to the government of Poland again? Putin obsessively talked about Poland 
in his interview with Carlson. He mentioned Poland more than 30 times. He blamed Poland for starting World War II, uh, for, and not just for starting World War II, but for inciting Hitler's aggression against Poland. Uh, in using the exact same words as he uses when he talks about how Ukraine incited Russia's war against Ukraine. Uh, so, yes, I think he is putting, uh, he's, he's putting things in place uh, propagandistically for an invasion of Poland. Poland, which, not coincidentally, has just unseated a, uh, an authoritarian government and is rebuilding its democracy. It's very much in the same stages of political reinvention that Ukraine was when Russia first invaded Ukraine in 2014. Um, this is the kind of thing that gets Putin going. This is uh, his righteous anger against the former subjects of the Russian Empire, right? And he's reaching back into history to when Poland uh, much of Poland was part of the Russian Empire to find justification for invasion. And um, yeah, I believe he really wants to crush Poland. New Yorker staff writer Masha Gessen. Masha, thank you again very much. Thank you for having me. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio. 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.